if we're known by a handful of things at the Anchor Bible Church, I would say that discipleship is among the top of those things. Uh, it would be high on the list if you were, if you've been here for any appreciable period of time, uh, to describe to a friend or a neighbor or a family member what our church is about. I expect that you would include discipleship in that explanation, and I suppose that you probably would mention that that discipleship has been beneficial for you. Uh, I know that that is often the case in my discussions with many of you regarding our discipleship efforts. And yet, it's uh, no surprise to you that discipleship has become an option. It's become uh, a matter of decision or a matter of choice, whether or not I'm going to be involved in discipleship. And it's really the result of what, if you went back to the 80s in, uh, in the matter of historical Christendom, is related to, or really derived from, the matter of what's called the lordship salvation debate. It's really what it comes from. An absence or a disinterest in discipleship is not unusual in the framework of those who would say that it is possible to become saved and not yet know Jesus as Lord. You've heard this idea many times, I'm sure. Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. And Interestingly, there are plenty of folks who are not committed to discipleship who would say, well, that's wrong. Of course, Jesus can't be your Savior and not your Lord. He, you can't have him as Savior and not have him as Lord. And I'm, as I'm saying, there are plenty of people who would say, yeah, that's clearly wrong, and yet they themselves are showing zero interest in the basic mandate of discipleship. That's one thing when someone who has plainly and outspokenly rejected Christ says, I don't want anything to do with the church. Well, that makes sense. But the person who calls himself a Christian but wants nothing to do with the body of Christ is quite confused at the very least. He may not even be converted. In addition to that, the person who says, I have zero interest, he makes the statement by his life, he has no interest in discipling others, and it clearly can be rooted in a disinterest in being discipled. Discipleship is a mandate. It's a command. And you start with that mindset, which is an accurate mindset, but if that's where you leave it, it could sound like you're saying to someone, you need to be saddled with just one more burden. And yet, exactly the opposite is the truth. The person who subjects himself to and engages in the enjoyment of discipleship would say, wow, now I'm getting the Christian life in perspective. I'm beginning to throw off the bitterness that so often was the thread that ran through my every involvement with people. I'm beginning to see that sacrifice not only has some value in terms of persuading others to think that I'm committed, it actually is a joy to spend my life on people. And I'm finding that the glory of Christ is not some nebulous, ethereal concept that I can't get my arms around. And I think you'll see, the more you read your Bible, the more time you spend with faithful Christians, you're going to find that the glory of God is bound up in and displayed in your good works. If you were to do a quick concordant study using the words good works, you're going to find it a lot in the Bible. You are called to do good works. Now, of course, we are diametrically opposed to the idea of works salvation. That's why the Reformation took place, really. The Roman Catholic idea that salvation comes by works is precisely the opposite. It's a false gospel. It's heresy. The 
true salvation that comes by grace and through faith alone is that which results in good works. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, after explaining that your salvation is by grace, that you're predestined for good works. And Paul, again, in Philippians 2.12, says, work, right? Work out, what? Your salvation. For it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, is how Paul says that there, to accomplish good works in you. You do them, but he is thereby producing your sanctification. So the good works, what are they for? Are they for display, right? Are they simply to take place so that people would know who you are? Well, no. No. We're encouraged throughout the scripture to to lay low, to not make a big display of ourselves, really to be humble, to not boast. Those good works, by God's design, are designed to bring glory to him, that you would do them for that specific purpose. Where? What's the context? It's the church. It's the church. The context is the church. That You and I would be known by our love for one another. And you say, well, but aren't we supposed to do good works and to love and to serve unbelievers as well? Yes, but please don't be deceived into thinking that you can bypass the church and be devoted to some measure of good works without first coming to the place where the church really ultimately is your life. Your involvement in the world should simply be a byproduct of your devotion to Christ and his church. And by the way, that's a massive commitment. That's a massive commitment to be devoted to relationships in the world. I'm not talking about some secondary issue. Your evangelistic fervor is going to be driven by your love for Christ, your love for the body. We're not saying that, you know, if you have some time left over, spend it with the lost. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that in your devotion to the body of Christ that is born out of Christ's love for you and your return love for him, the spillover will be natural. You won't have to fight to figure out where to fit the world into your schedule because you will be so driven by an economy of managing your time that Christ is preeminent in everything and your great devotion is to be discipled and to disciple and therefore in everything you do in the world there will be spillover from your heart. You won't be able to help but tell people about the love of God and the love of the body. But this morning, as we look at this concept together, I wanted to intro what we're talking about by dealing with some problems. And really, we're talking about one problem. We're talking about an absence of discipleship. I want to make a strong statement from the beginning, and I want you to kind of sit on it. And as we go through the text of Scripture together, I want you to ask the question whether or not this makes sense. I want you to struggle with the question of whether or not a person is even converted if he has a low view of discipleship. You say, well, what if he's brand new in the faith? Well, that diverts attention away from the point of what we're talking about, doesn't it? Of course, if he's new in the faith, he needs to be taught. 
he needs to be trained to understand that discipleship is a basic reality of the Christian faith. By the way, on this note, before I forget, there are two messages on our website that are derived directly from Matthew 28, which are a very clear call to the matter of discipleship. We often think of Matthew 28 as an evangelistic passage, and it is. But what does evangelism find its root in? Discipleship. We are called to make disciples. And yet, there are those who think that somehow they can bypass, really do away with, really have nothing to do with the concept of discipleship and say that they are involved in evangelism in the world. But I would ask, what in the world, what on earth, and I mean those phrases very literally, are you evangelizing someone unto if you're not committed to ecclesiological discipleship? Discipleship in the church. Where would your evangelism take them? Well, to heaven. No, 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 no. That completely misses the whole point. You don't bypass the church to get to heaven. Evangelism is a work of the church. And how is a person known? If he is a convert, he's known by his devotion to the church. That's how we know a person is converted. Not because he says, you know, I've asked Jesus into my heart and, and my sins are forgiven and um, I'm going to heaven. We know that he's received eternal life because he loves the brethren. So he's devoted to discipleship. Well, look at your so that statement there, and I, I hope this proves helpful as we go. Desiring to obey our Savior this morning, we will examine his word to understand what he and the apostles have taught us on the matter of discipleship so that we may effectively worship and honor him. Now, you say, wait a minute, how is the matter of discipleship necessary in order for me to worship and obey him? If that's the question you're asking, you're not with me yet. If you're asking the question, how do, why do I need discipleship in order to, to worship and obey Jesus Christ on my own? That little tag at the end that I added there would be an indication that the person who's asking that question doesn't even understand the beginnings of what Christianity is. Christianity is not something that you do on your own. This, again, as I've mentioned many times, is the knee-jerk response of the evangelical movement to the over-control of Roman Catholicism. Christianity is about Christians, plural. It is about Christ ultimately saving the elect and bringing them to the place where one day he would so refined them that he would present them to himself as a perfect bride. And that process involves sanctification, and sanctification requires discipleship. It requires interaction with the body. So again, in our so that statement, we're not simply looking toward the matter of us as individuals, we as individuals worshiping more effectively or obeying more effectively in and of ourselves. But if, let me back up a moment and say, but if, we as individuals are to obey him. There is no such thing as obedience in solitaire. It can't happen. If I am to be obedient, I'm going to serve what? The body. If I'm going to be obedient, I'm going to use my spiritual gifts to edify the body. If I'm going to be obedient, I'm going to evangelize the lost. It involves other people. It involves a commitment, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10, a commitment to the elect. 
Now, I don't know who the elect are if they're not yet saved. I know who the elect are who are saved. But those who are yet not saved but are of the elect is where our devotion is. Now, how do we work that out? Not by trying to figure out whether or not they're of the elect before they're saved. You can't do that. Paul couldn't. None of us can. But our commitment is to serve the church of God, the flock of God among us, 1 Peter 5. I have that written over my doorpost in my office, lest I ever forget. I don't think I will, but if I do, you know, if I get to that place where I can't even find the door, you just point me back to those words. Shepherd the flock of God among you. The shepherd leads the sheep to the place where the sheep interact in a productive way. And our commitment to do that should be such that we'd be known by that. If you're still wrestling with this idea that your Christian faith is your, you know, singular Christian faith, and happens to occasionally involve some folks that you bump into and don't mind eating with as long as they don't eat off your plate, then you've got the wrong idea. Christianity is an interdependent work amongst all of those for whom Christ died. Well, I have some points for you. Point number one, the mandate. The mandate. First, we see a mandate from Jesus, and I've alluded to it already, from Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, and I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to these passages and ask you to go there with me in them. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, I heard a man on a talk show just yesterday misinterpret what's being spoken of here by pointing to the idea that we need a presidential candidate who will lead us to do this, to disciple all nations. And he even asked a very manipulative question to the person he was interviewing on his radio show by saying, so which candidate do you think is going to best be qualified to disciple other nations? Nowhere throughout Christian history do you see the idea of a nation in and of itself being discipled. The idea is that you go into the nations and you disciple individuals who are of the elect when they agree to be discipled. So Jesus is giving a command here, and really the command is make. The command is disciple. That's the main verb. The other verbs that you see there that are translated as commands are actually participles that support this main verb. The main and really only command in this passage is disciple as a verb. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now go back to verse 18 for the motivation or the support underneath this command. As you know, Jesus says here, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he lays out this reality that he holds authority everywhere. There is no authority that's not his. He is the ultimate authority. There are other authorities, but they all are subject to his authority. And his command then is to do this. We call this the Great Commission. Now, if you back up from Matthew 1 through uh, up to this point in 28, what you'll find is a massive expression of discipleship. Over and over and over and over and over, the text of the Gospel of Matthew explains and discusses and narrates what discipleship actually is. And you get to this capstone at the end of the letter, and Jesus gives this command, now go and do this. And by the way, do it 
in all the nations, which is why in our missions focus, we intend to reach the uttermost part of the world as the Anchor Bible Church. This coming year, we will do our own mission trip. We've very gratefully ridden the back of Grace Community Church for the last two years with a number of mission trips. We're going to do our own this coming year. We're going to take some folks to Malawi. It's not the uttermost part of the world. It's not the greatest distance from Redlands, California, but it's on track. We're doing that because we're commanded to do this. Where, though, does this begin? It began where Jesus began. It began with converts, those that he had access to, those that he would spend time with. Ultimately, post-first century, the only context of discipleship is the church. It's not the Boys and Girls Club or the White YMCA or some on-campus ministry that, you know, maybe you were first led to Christ in, and so you've got some emotional and sentimental devotion to that college, university, on-campus ministry. There's no such thing as discipleship in that context in the scripture. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's a diversion, and it's parachurch at best. But if discipleship is not going on in the church, then I I wouldn't suggest someone uh, who's involved in that church be involved in an on-campus ministry. He needs to find a church that's devoted to discipleship under the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus declares his authority over all things, and then he gives this command, disciple the nations. Well, in Titus 2, I'm going to do my best to get through this passage without interrupting Paul here with any commentary, but in Titus 2, if you turn there, verse 1, and I want to give you the context, as, as, uh, the greater context as well as the more specific context of discipleship. There's a message on our website out of Titus 2. Ladies, I did that on Mother's Day a couple of years ago. I strongly encourage you to go and listen to that message to get a good, strong picture of what your discipleship should look like in the church. Titus 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, remember, Paul's speaking to a young pastor here. He's explaining to this young pastor what he needs to do to encourage and implement discipleship within the church. So he tells him to teach sound doctrine. And then he says, older men, this is what he's telling Titus that he needs to teach. He needs to teach this to older men. So he says, older men are to be sober-minded. They're to be dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let me stop there for just a moment and point out here that what Paul is doing with Titus is he's explaining how he needs to teach sound doctrine and then how he needs to instruct men to disciple men and women to disciple women. And then he goes into this arena of the workplace. 
And so he gives details on how bond servants, slaves, employees, are to handle themselves with their employer. And he gives them some prohibitions, but ultimately he's pointing to the fact that everything they should do should be bound up in sound doctrine so that the relationships in the workplace are not just influenced by, but they are dictated by sound doctrine. How does that happen? You know it doesn't happen this way. You know it doesn't happen by your own personal Bible reading that you go into the workplace and everything just goes smooth as can be. Well, of course it doesn't happen that way. There are going to be times where you remember what you've read in your Bible reading and you go, you know what, I blew it. And then some days you do better. But what you need that you would handle yourself properly in the workplace is someone to encourage you to do that. Someone who's been through the same reality of living life as a Christian subject to unbelievers who make life difficult at times. You need a discipler. You need to be discipling someone who will one day, if not already, be undergoing the same difficulties that you're experiencing. Well, then verse 11, and this uh, Paul uh, puts it all back into the, the deeper matter of the gospel. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See that? So the, the good works that we are to be zealous for are the vehicle of evangelism. They are the vehicle by which this blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will allow us opportunity to explain to others that this truth is about to happen. And we're in the real throes of that in Second Peter, aren't we? The need to tell those who have heard falsely that Jesus is not returning, that there will be no judgment on the world. Those are false teachers, and that happens all around us. And at the very least, there are those who put no emphasis on the return of Christ and the fact that there will be a judgment on the world. We are to be committed to good works. We should have a zeal for good works. How can you have a zeal for good works amongst those who hate you and hate Christ? Well, you certainly can't and shouldn't, I hope you're not, motivated by that occasional offering that they throw up so that you will, you know, like them a little bit more. This is the sad disposition of the person who doesn't understand evangelism. He gets to the place where he says, you know what, I've, I've been pretty nice to that person, and you know what, he's treating me better these days. What we ought to be committed to is the idea that he's not going to treat us better, and if he does, he's probably manipulating us because he wants something out of us. The far better disposition is to say that God, by his grace, saved me from the disposition that he holds. How's he going to know the difference if I'm only waiting for him to treat me better? My mindset ought to be to have a zeal for good works, knowing that God in Christ, Christ himself, is purifying a people for himself, for his own possession, and that that should result in good works. How's that going to happen? How are you going to be involved in that? Well, you need discipleship. 
You need someone to encourage you to do that. You will get discouraged. And there will be days you won't even think about this if you're not grappling with this with someone else. Paul finishes up that section there in Titus 2 by saying, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Right? Do not uh, let anyone disregard you. Be committed to the solid truths of the scripture and in so doing, stick with them. Be committed to the doctrine of discipleship. Don't, don't let it fizzle just because there will be those in the church who will let it fizzle. Stay close to that sound doctrine. Don't let anyone disregard you. Remain committed to this basic Christian tenet. Stick with it. My experience says people will come around. You've heard it said, and I know one church that kind of hinges nearly everything it does on this little phrase. It says that uh, the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and expect a different outcome. That's a quote of, of Albert Einstein. Who, who was a, a non-Christian, an unbeliever. The truth is that we are to keep doing the same thing and expect a different outcome. You know, in parenting, right, that's kind of how it works. Did your, did your child do well in potty training the first time? Oh, no? Oh, so you gave up and said, well, why would I keep doing that and expect a different outcome? People, Christians grow. Christians humble themselves. True converts find the word of God to be increasingly valuable. And you and I must be patient with those who are resisting discipleship. You and I must be patient with them. And if you are resisting discipleship yourself, you don't have the um, freedom to say, well, you know, Todd said you're supposed to be patient with me. You should be saying, praise God that those people have been patient with me. It's time. It's time for me to be faithful to Jesus Christ in the matter of discipleship. Well, 2 Timothy 2, here's one more element from Paul, the apostle. 2 Timothy 2, I'd encourage you to turn there, verse 1. Paul says, you then, my child. Now, you know, again, he's speaking with a fatherly, pastoral love for this young pastor, Timothy. It's his second letter to Timothy. He says, be strengthened. Calls him his child. He says, be strengthened. By the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful, faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Friends, this passage describes my life. By God's grace, he has surrounded me with men who love the word of God. A substantial number of men who I would trust, I wouldn't only trust my kids with them, I or trust them with my kids, I would trust them with the word of God, which is truly a far greater responsibility. I trust them to teach you. I have a responsibility, according to Hebrews 13, for your soul. Now, that might be foreign to you. You might think, ah, Todd, that's a little much. That's, a, that's getting a little too close. It's what scripture requires. It's all I know to believe and think and operate by. I have a responsibility for your soul before the Lord. God has told me that, and you can't do anything to undo that conviction in my heart because it is a clear mandate of Scripture. And so you might think that, some might think, I think that would be an uncommon thought in our church, but you may be thinking that this is a little bit pushy. But it's not at all. 
and the person who understands and appreciates the value of what God has provided in men who love the word of God runs to that. They don't run from it. They run to it. They don't see themselves on the fringe, on the outskirts of the church. They're engaging in the body in such a way that they too would have the privilege to pass these truths on to others. This is the theme of the Master's Seminary. Whatever you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so in the moment that I see a man showing a passion for Scripture, he lives a godly life, and he has the ability to clearly articulate truth in such a way that's not defensive, it's not prideful, he's not trying to win the argument, he's trying to serve that his service would result in the edification of others and the glory of God. I'm saying that's a man who would appear to be trustworthy with the word of God. And I've had the privilege in the four years that we've been a church to entrust numerous men with this great responsibility. And friends, there is a clear and obvious line between this man and the man that this does not describe. There is a clear and obvious distinction. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much time. It doesn't take much conversation. It doesn't take much interaction in a discipleship venue to determine a man is humble and he's simply there for the purpose of learning and helping others learn. In our discipleship environment, we have nurtured an interaction. We call for questions. And by the way, the man who asks questions is the humble man. But the man who only ever has input doesn't think he has anything to learn. Paul finishes here with this great statement in 2 Timothy 2, in verse 3, by saying, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You see that? His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He wants God to be pleased, and so he does what he does for the good of those whom he serves. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The folks who think, oh, I'm doing discipleship. Are you doing it according to the rules? Discipling in the church? Are you being discipled in the church? Verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer. You see all these wonderful illustrations that we can all understand? It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. By the way, what's the purpose of the parables? You know what the purpose of the parables is? It's to show the confused state of the unbeliever. That's, Jesus says that. That's the purpose of the parables when, it, when the disciples ask him, you know, why do you teach in parables? So, so often when we're going through scripture and we look at a passage like this and we see Jesus using, or Paul actually using illustrations, the person who still doesn't get it, still won't embrace the concept. It must be asked, is he a convert? What's his purpose? What's his goal? What's his motivation? Why does he do what he does? Why is he involved in the church? If he doesn't understand that his role is to be faithful, to be a man who would be given the opportunity to share the faithful responsibility of communicating truth to others. One thing you can be certain of. If you're not involved in discipleship, you're involved in disobedience. That you can be sure of. 
Well, number two, the makeup. We've looked at the mandate, really, from Jesus and from Paul. Now you want to look at the makeup, the makeup of a disciple. Just in short, a disciple is one who obeys Jesus, leading others to obey and worship Jesus. A disciple is one who obeys Jesus and leads others to obey Jesus. He is one who makes disciples. Back to Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. There were theirs, though, who doubted. There were there those who did not worship him, but the true disciples fell before him, prostrate, and worshipped him, because that's what disciples do. But along with that, moving forward into the passages we've already looked at, we see that those who had shown themselves to be true disciples, who truly worshipped Jesus, what does he call them to? He calls them to make disciples. The makeup of a disciple is that he makes disciples. John 15, verse 6, shows that a disciple loves the brethren. John 15, verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. You see the... the, the false convert starts to lose interest when we start talking about loving the brethren. He starts to slip away, think about other things. There's no interest in loving the brethren. But what Jesus is pointing out here is that he's not converted. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. How many times have you heard that passage misapplied? What's he talking about here? Let's read it again. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. He's talking about the love of the brethren. He's talking about abiding in God, God abiding in him, and each believer abiding in the body collectively. So he says, if the word abides in you, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Obviously, in the context of body involvement, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. But this passage is so often pulled out of context to say, well, you can have have health and wealth and all that you desire. Great financial prosperity. I've heard this misused many times. But listen to verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Friends, if you hear nothing else I say today, please hear that verse. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The person who bears no fruit in discipleship has not yet proven to even be a disciple. But isn't it amazing that this basic call of the Christian faith is, has become not only a side note, 
it's become an, an unmentionable. There are churches who refuse to have membership. Why would they refuse to have membership? Because there's no accountability. That way, there's no need for discipleship. Just listen to the teaching. I hope you like it and stick around for coffee afterward maybe. But you know, don't imitate me because you know, I'm going to fail. They'll say things like that. Don't imitate me. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Friends, please hear me. With the utmost love of a pastor's heart for sheep, if you are not bearing fruit in discipleship, you must not be persuaded that you are converted. You cannot be persuaded that you are converted if you are not bearing fruit in discipleship. I'm not saying that you are certainly not a Christian. I'm not saying that. Maybe you've not been taught well, and maybe you are so wrapped up in some secular and idolatrous pursuit that you've lost sight of your first love, or any other number of reasons. Maybe you're a brand new Christian. If you're a brand new Christian, you ought to recognize that the grace of God will lead you to a hunger for discipleship, but you ought not to be thinking, maybe I'm not converted because I'm not discipling anybody yet. You're not ready yet. You need discipleship, and you're in a church where we provide it in a landslide-type method. The person who says, I've been at the Anchor Bible Church for a year or two or three, and I just can't find where, you know, to be discipled, that, that would require another conversation where I would boldly and lovingly say to you, well, let me show you how we're providing it. I, I, think, I think you will find that if you will look, you will realize that if there's anything that we provide in a substantial way, it's discipleship. In John 15, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Don't, don't think that you love Jesus if you don't love Christians. And I'm not talking about so much the emotional element of it. I'm talking about the practical matter of agape love where one actually surrenders his life for the sake of people and their eternal, or eternal souls. We are to love one another as, uh, as Jesus loves us. He gave his life for us. We're to give our lives for each other. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Is he talking about that eros, romantic love? Well, of course not. That word's not even in the Bible. Is he talking, is he talking about the phileo, brotherly love? No. He's talking about agape love, a willingness to live and die for others. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is the black and white theology of the Apostle John. You want black and white, you go to John. And John is separating 
the wheat from the chaff. He's separating the sheep from the goats. He's separating, let me say it this way, and you need to hear it this way. He's separating the convert from the false convert. The one who thinks he's a convert because he's embraced some things that derive from biblical Christianity. Yet, it's very clear, the one who has no love for the brethren is not converted. There's no middle ground in Christianity. Now, for some of you, and for some of many folks throughout Christendom, this is simply a matter of increasing in maturity. And the conviction should be, okay, I'm pretty convinced I'm not in the middle ground, which, oh, by the way, doesn't exist. I'm relatively certain I'm a Christian, but I have not been faithful in this area. I have not given my life for the edification and the sanctification of the body. I'm too busy trying to figure out my career. I'm too busy trying to raise my children. We'll talk more about those things later. A person who is devoted truly, genuinely, in a Christ-magnifying way to his family, to his career, is a person who is devoted to discipleship in the church. It's the fundamental basis of having right relationships in the biological family as well as in the workplace. I mentioned earlier that the disciple asks questions. We're still talking about the makeup of a true Christian disciple. He asks questions. Listen to this from Acts 8, verse 30. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? Here's Philip asking a question. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? That's a question. The Ethiopian eunuch appears to have what I often refer to a heightened sensitivity to things spiritual. A heightened sensitivity to God. Is he saved yet here? We don't know. But certainly he shows himself to be saved in this text with his pursuits. He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. You see, that's a... That's a budding disciple. He pursues a mentor. He pursues someone. He doesn't say, you know what? I've been in the Christian faith for 30 years. I got it figured out. Oh, yeah? The person who has that attitude, you know what my question for him is? Show me the trail of disciples behind you. That's the question I have for the man who says, I really don't need someone to disciple me. Show me the reproduction of your life. Who are the converts? Who are the mature believers? Who are the ones who are growing in humility? We should ask one another these questions, lest we be deceived and think that we've been involved in Christianity when perhaps we haven't. The text here in Acts 8 goes on this way. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent so he opens not his mouth in his humiliation justice was denied who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth this is a gospel passage this is a passage that in the old testament laid a foundation for the coming of the savior who died for the sins of the world And so the eunuch said to Philip with a question, 
About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Listen to what this opened up. Listen to what that exchange laid the groundwork for. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, that laid the groundwork for him to tell him about Jesus. There was an interchange. There was an exchange between two men where one was determining whether or not this person was interested determined that he was. And so he told him about Jesus. You see, the makeup of the disciple is that he's not easily sidetracked with matters of the world. He keeps his family and his possessions in proper perspective. I didn't say that he over-prioritizes the church above his family and his job, but he does keep them in proper perspective. Listen to this from Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Who is the person, according to Jesus, who cannot be his disciple? If we deal strictly, momentarily, with the text in the English translation that you hold, we see that the person who will not hate himself, the person who will not hate his wife, the person who will not hate his father or mother, that's the person who cannot be a disciple. Now, what is Jesus meaning with this? Clearly, he's talking about a much lesser love for those whom we are commanded to love. You're commanded to honor and love your parents. You're commanded to honor and love your wife. You're commanded not to love yourself. In fact, there's no command in the scripture to love yourself. There is the implication that you do. But the love that one would have for Christ would so supersede his love for others that he would be known by that love. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The person who deliberately, intentionally, and somewhat with a rigid hard-heartedness sets his family above the church, perhaps hasn't read this text and most likely doesn't understand the implications of it. Now, you know this from 1 Timothy 3. An elder must manage his family well. If not, he cannot manage the church of God. But the person who idolizes his family makes an idol of his children, makes an idol of his wife. To the degree that discipleship is never even on the table, has abandoned Christ's command in this text. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? The one who finds himself claiming to be a tower builder, claiming to be a Christian, and yet didn't count the cost, could well be the man who has such a devotion to his family that he has no devotion to the church of Christ. And how is that revealed? In a lack of willingness to reproduce himself in the church. Certainly willing to reproduce himself in the home, as proven by the fact that he has children But if he's not reproducing himself in the church, 
there's no way we could think that he has any real legitimate interest in his children's better good. What is he teaching them? If he himself is not discipling others, not being discipled, what is he saying to his children? He's saying family is more important. It's all about family. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is a matter of prioritizing your life such that your family would see your devotion to Christ and his church. That's the makeup of a disciple. He nurtures a love for discipleship in his family. His family sees him discipling others. His family sees him being discipled. Matthew 12, 46, while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He puts family in proper perspective. And by the way, what was the result of this statement from Jesus regarding his family? They were later saved. We have testimony from siblings of Jesus who were claiming some familial authority in his life. Wait a minute. This is my family. The body of Christ is my family. And it would be reasonable to believe that that testimony then led to an understanding amongst his biological brothers and sisters that it was important to first be devoted to the body. And I commend to you that if you will make certain that the body of Christ is the priority that Christ has called for it to be in your life, then you will have a legitimate platform. I'm not promising that your siblings and your children and your spouses and your parents will come to know Christ, but I am saying that without that platform, you will have no influence on them in that regard. The disciple's devotion to the body with a proper devotion to his family teaches his family to place a high value on God's family. No man should wonder why his children, by the time they're 16, 17, 18, develop a disinterest in the church when he himself has found every opportunity over the years to use the Lord's Day as a wild card day for everything from weekend getaways to football games to sleeping in to moving their home from one location to another. He should not wonder why his children follow that pattern when he established the pattern. And I can say this with bold confidence because as a local church, we've provided so many opportunities for many of you, and we will continue to do it on into the future, to serve you in such a way that you are freed up to be with the body on the Lord's Day. And yet... 
I'm occasionally befuddled by those who will say, well, I needed Sunday to do this. Well, tell me about the prior week, the prior weeks. What did you do to engage the body of Christ to help you with that need such that you would be freed up to worship Christ with the body, which is the mandate of your life, which then sends a huge message to your family, whether it's your immediate family or those more distant family members that you love and hope to see come to Christ, even though you don't have that much influence with them. When you occasionally have an influence on them, when you occasionally have an opportunity to have an influence on them, take it. Take it. And show them that your devotion to Christ who died for your sins and who was resurrected for your resurrection is of such value that nothing, nothing will separate you from those for whom he died for his glory. Are there exceptions to this? Well, of course there are. Of course there are exceptions to this. Don't think that I'm being unreasonable in saying that the idea is that no faithful Christian ever misses the Lord's day. Of course there are illnesses. Of course there are job responsibilities that will keep you away from time to time. Some of you for extended periods. Of course there are extended trips that take you out of the area. We wouldn't expect someone, although I've known a few people who've done it, to come back for the Lord's Day when you're you know, on the East Coast. But many times those who are not willing to think through the responsibility of the devotion that they are to have to Christ and to his church will jump to those extreme examples and say, well, it sounds like you're saying this, and I'm not saying anything like that at all. If you know my heart, you know I'm not. But what I'm saying is that for your better good, and by the way, for the effective evangelism that you hope to have with those that don't know Christ in your family. The best thing you can do is show them the character of a true disciple. The character of a true disciple. The makeup of a true disciple is that he obeys Jesus and he effectually leads others to obey Jesus. I've got a number of other points here, but for the sake of wrapping this up, I want to just begin to ask you some, some questions about your thought process. In the study guide I provided for you, I, I provided a little section at the end there called Your Experience. And um, I do know that it's not unlikely that, that there will be those who will say, you know what, I, I don't know how to disciple. And, and that would be true of every person who has ever become a Christian, that at some point he didn't know how to disciple. Well, we provide that. We show you. We teach you. We've, we've created a, a basic structure in Ironman and WOW and 412 and 116. But friends, hear me when I tell you, that is not, that in and of itself, Ironman, WOW, 412, 116, that is not a picture of the discipleship that we're calling you to. That's a vehicle to it. The picture is the one-on-one, one-on-two, one-on-three interaction where you're asking questions and others are asking you questions and you're growing in humility and you're growing in your obedience to Jesus Christ. You might say, I don't have time. I don't have time for discipleship. You can't avoid the mandate to be a disciple in Scripture. 
So if you don't have time, then there is something that you must set aside. Now, it may take weeks or even months for you to be able to set that aside. You may need to gear up for that. But there is no exception clause in the scripture that says, I don't have time. You may say, oh, I disciple my family. Okay, good. You should do that. So should I. But you can't do that alone. You can't do that alone. And by the way, if you're not discipling others in other families, what are you saying to your family? You're saying discipleship is about family. And it's not. It's about Christ's glory and the development of the church and effective evangelism. You might say, it's not my thing. I had a guy tell me this one time. He said, I'm not into the men thing, those exact words. And I said, well, Jesus was into the men thing. You might say, I serve in other ways. Good, you should. You should also be involved in discipleship. You might say, I tried discipleship one time. And this guy uh, that I asked to disciple me let me down. Yeah, um, the guy who won't doesn't exist. But he also, if he is faithful to Christ, if he is growing in obedience, he will want you to tell him. He will want you to say to him, you know, I appreciate your willingness to disciple me, but I think you let me down. He would want you to tell him that. That's what a humble disciple would do. And that then would provide a good example for you to become a man who himself would disciple others. I have so much more here, but I want to finish by sharing with you that when, um, when my son Dawson was a baby, we um, gave him a tool belt, gave him a toy hammer, a screwdriver, and some other tools. <laughs> and I'll never, ever lose the image of him with his bright blue and yellow um, broom sweeping the garage with me. Very little guy. He had the tool belt on. We still have it. And um, I'll never forget that image. When he was three, uh, one day when he and I had been working in the garage together, it was time for him and his mom and his two-year-old little brother, Cole, to leave the house to run some errands. And he came from the backyard into the garage to say goodbye to me, and I had stepped into the backyard to say goodbye to him, so we missed each other. This disconnect happened several times, three or four times, and he went into an emotional meltdown looking for me, crying hysterically. Well, we eventually found each other, and while he was crying, I said, buddy, what's wrong? What happened? And he said, I couldn't find you. <laughs> I held him for a while, put him in the car, he and his mom and brother left. And then I cried hysterically for a long time. <laughs> long time. Uh, because I know what it's like to not be able to find my dad. And as much as I would like for you to believe, and it is true that much of my hysteria was emotion and sadness and compassion for my little boy, some of it stemmed from the sadness that comes from growing up without a dad. And some of you ex have experienced that. But what I do have is a heavenly father. Now, sometimes you'll hear people talk about this, and it gets mystical, and you go, well, how does that really help? Oh, you, ha you don't have an earthly father, but you have a heavenly father. That doesn't replace an earthly father. I just want you to know that. So that's not what I'm about to tell you. But I will say that having a heavenly father is such that that heavenly father provides people in your life. He provides people in your life, not just to fill the gap, but to fill the primary role of spiritual fatherhood. And Paul says this. Paul explains this to the Thessalonians, that they have many spiritual guides, he says, but one spiritual father, and it was Paul. 
It was Paul. Paul was their spiritual father. Now, Paul's the same guy who is submissive to Jesus Christ. You said you shouldn't call any man father. So Paul wasn't calling for people to call him father. He was simply saying that you need a spiritual guide. You need a number of them, but you need a spiritual father. Ladies, you need a spiritual mother. When I was, uh, I don't know, three or so, four, I, I have very few images of my dad. But I, I remember this one so well. We were in Joplin, Missouri, my hometown. We were walking somewhere, and we had gotten to a stoplight. And um, next thing I know, I look up, and my dad's halfway across the street. And I'm frozen. What do I do? And he's going, come on, buddy, come on. And I'm like, I'm three. <laughs> you know, I don't know what to do here. I'm scared to death. So he came back and got me, and he walked me across the street like any dad would. That's what a discipler does. He has this natural interest in helping those who don't know what to do. Today is Dawson's 11th birthday. Yesterday, I gave him a cordless power drill, a real one. So uh, after I cut some boards, ladies, I didn't let my son use a saw, just so you know, not yet. After I cut some boards and gave them to him, he put some drywall screws down in them and readied them to be put on the tree that he was going to uh, put them on to be able to climb up the tree. And um, two younger brothers, five and seven, both wearing hard hats, goggles, and gloves, Yes, we have a picture. You'll love to see it. And Dawson takes the drill and the screws and a couple of boards, and he says, Men! I need some lumber. Pick it up and let's get busy. Let's get this job done. And uh, I watched from the window. We've done enough of these things together that he can do these things. And I had to go back out there and take a picture because he's up in the tree. All the boards are screwed to the tree. He's up in the tree, hanging down from the fork in the tree, upside down, with the drill, like this. And I'm beaming. And uh, thinking, my son is putting a screw in a board upside down. That's good stuff. It's just a joy to see things like that. And if you have children, you've experienced this, where you've seen the progression. You know, when he was two or three, he couldn't do that. He probably tried, but he couldn't do that. And uh, I'm no carpenter. Um, some of you are. Some of you are quite skilled. And some of you have the great ability to engage in discipleship by way of some vehicle that utilizes a power drill. You say, how do I disciple? Do what you know. And when the moment's right, insert some theology. Find someone who knows less than you do. And start telling them truths, much like Philip told the Ethiopian eunuch. 
Don't let it be a haphazard devotion that you're going to get to when your kids are old and out of the house. If you're not involved in discipleship, are you even converted? It's not for me to assess that, not ultimately. But if you're converted, if you're converted and you are, in fact, a disciple, there's no such thing as the believer who's not a disciple, right? If you're a disciple, then perhaps today's the day for you to say, where do I get started? How did I miss this? I want to be involved in other people's lives. By the way, I have four more sons who need discipleship along with my oldest son. And no, I can't do it alone, and not just because I have a kind of large family. No one can disciple their children alone. No one. No one. One of the great privileges for me is that some of the men in our church that I've invested in are today investing in my sons. That's how it should work. It's not, that's not unusual, or it shouldn't be unusual. But let's finish with these questions that you and I should ponder together. Who's discipling you? Who's discipling you, and who are you discipling? And what's the result? If there's some result, it's minuscule, it's small, rejoice, because it exists. But if, in all honesty, you can say, you know what, I've abandoned this, and it's time. And you find your family group shepherd afterward, or your family group shepherd's wife, and you start today putting together a plan to be faithful to Ironman, to be faithful to WOW, 412, 116, to be faithful to those ministries that provide, and we're going to talk more about that next week, that will provide the basis for the picture of discipleship in God's word. Father, thank you for the faithful people of the Anchor Bible Church whom I love so dearly and many of whom have so invested in my children that their investment in some cases outweighs my investment in terms of the product. I couldn't name all the people who have poured into my kids and I know that that will even grow over the years. But, Lord, we ask of you, not just those of us who have children, but every one of us, Father, would ask of you that you would use our efforts in young ones, that we would one day, as spiritual grandparents, see that that effort is a commitment that not only they receive, but one that they chose to pass on. I trust, Father, that the work you are currently doing in discipleship would have no earthly terminus, but that we could look back at the end of our lives, Father, and see what you've accomplished by multiple generations of faithful discipleship leading to the salvation of the lost, all for your glory. Amen.